Father, we're grateful this evening that we can fellowship and we are privileged to be able to break the bread of life and look into the word of God. So for the next few moments, Lord, as we dive into the scriptures, give us ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly and allow the lesson to edify and minister to each person. We are so grateful that you gave your son to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we could never express, even if we had a thousand tongues, we couldn't praise you enough. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. Hebrews 10 tonight, we like to look at the passages beginning with verse 19, and we want to focus on, let us hold fast to our profession. And beginning with verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now we looked last week, I believe it was, at the blood of the New Testament, and again, Paul, whom we take to be the author, reiterated over and over again, the reason why Jesus had to come, and he wanted us to understand that the blood of animals was only temporary. Now, God chose that method. He ordained that method. But we wanted you to understand that some things in the scripture were for a season. Jesus was already the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So the plan of God, the eternal purpose and plan of God was that Jesus would come into this world at some particular time. So some institutions were not designed to last forever. So some of the ceremonies, the rituals. And then we gave you the illustration that when you married at an early age or when you took your first job in another city, it maybe you purchased a house, or maybe you rented a house, or maybe rented an apartment, but you knew that was only going to be temporary. It wasn't going to be a long-term deal. And that's exactly what the tabernacle was supposed to be. It was always God's plan for him to come and live in our hearts. And he was prophesying this through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, by saying, I will write my laws upon their hearts. You shall be my sons and my daughters. And by telling them that he would give a new covenant they prophesied this hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Now, verse 19 and 20 have two phrases that are important to us, and they are initiated by the word by, which we can say by means of. It's a, it's a word that is instrumental. It designates a method. The scripture says we have boldness to enter into the holiest by means of the blood of Jesus. So the blood of Jesus gives us access to God, access that others did not have in the manner that we have it. Abraham could pray to God. Moses could pray to God. 
Samuel and David were able to pray to God, but they did not approach God on the basis of the son's blood. They came to God on the basis of the sacrifices. But we have, according to the book of Hebrews, a better covenant, better high priest, better sacrifice, better promise, hope of a better country. So everything's better. That's what he's getting, getting to. So we have boldness. I can go into the presence of the Lord because of the blood of Jesus. Now, we brought this up in the Bible study last night. And someone was asking about um, confession. Some churches, of course, you know, somebody sits down and then there's a curtain here and then somebody tells about everything that they've done that past week. And, and we were talking about how now you can go directly to God because of the blood of Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'll be more than happy to sit down and listen to anything you have to say. If you want me to sit on the other side of a curtain, that's not going to bother me at all. But you just need to know you, you, you don't need to do that. It's not necessary. The scripture is very plain. We have access to God and we have boldness. Scripture says in verse 20, it's a new and living way. New, that, that doesn't mean refurbished. Okay? This is something entirely different than what has existed since the past. It's new and it's living. Now, why is it considered a living way? Well, Jesus was very plain in the Gospels when he said he's the way, the truth, and the life. It's an eternal way. It's a way that uh, certainly does not produce death. The scripture told us in the book of Romans that the law it points toward death. It points out death. But with Christ, we have something that's a little bit different. The scripture says he took this way and he consecrated it for us. John says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If he consecrated it, he sanctified it. And the scripture says that that veil, which is his body, that, that's what was broken, his body on Calvary. In the temple and in the tabernacle, there was a, a large curtain I forget how many feet tall it was, but that curtain kept people from going into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. People would go in there once a year, the high priest, under pain of death if he was not holy enough, sanctified enough. But the scripture says that when Jesus died, his body was that veil, figuratively speaking, torn so that we have access to God. And we're able to say that we're sons of the Lord and we can call him father now, which is why Jesus said, when you pray, pray our father, signifying relationship. David didn't pray to God like God was his father. Abraham didn't talk to God like God was his father. But you as a Christian have a distinct privilege that's different than what anybody else has had. And verse 21 says that he's a priest over the house of God. The house of God is no longer a building in Jerusalem. It is a people that exists all over the earth. It is the invisible church of God. Invisible only in the sense that God knows those that belong to him. Visible in the sense that all of us that name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we consider ourselves Christian. I meet people every day that say they're a Christian. But I'm certain they're not part of the house of God because I'm certain they're not born again. They don't know anything about God sometimes. Some people think being a Christian is 
like being an American. It's something you're born into. Well, Grandma was saved. Um, well, my uncle goes to church, so yeah, I'm a Christian. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about genuine relationship. When the scripture says he's a high priest over the house of God, he's saying specifically over that which is consecrated and sanctified unto him. It's that group of people that's walking on that way, the consecrated way. Jeremiah prophesied about telling the children of Israel to return to the old paths. You ever thought about that old paths? Sometimes we think that that the modern and most current and up-to-date thing is the best, but sometimes the old paths work just as well. I've seen people try to create shortcuts that end up being more problematic than just going directly in the, in the, uh, the, the way that you, you need to go. And this is what happens when people start looking for ways to circumvent the pathway to heaven through Jesus Christ. So what would be a shortcut? What would be something that's not a new and living way? Well, the scripture says there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If I must be saved, I may be saved. So I'm obliged to be saved through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and on account of what he did on the cross for us, the scheme of redemption that was prepared. But some people look at that and they'll say, you know what? <clears throat> I'm not sure that, that that's altogether accurate. If you just keep the golden rule, God should be pleased with that. But then you ask the question, what's the golden rule? You ask 10 people, you might get 10 different definitions. Mm -hmm. We're all supposed to walk in love, but it's possible to be loving, but at the same time misguided about the truth of God. Yeah. You say, how, how, how can that be possible? Because you can love the wrong thing. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world is the pride of life, lust of the eyes, and lust of the flesh. You can fall in love with the wrong person. I've heard people say, well, pastor, don't you understand? I love him. He loves me. We love each other. God is love. Love is God. That, that kind of a rationale. But you can fall in love with the wrong thing, and that ends up putting you on a different path. Remember the story of David's children? He had the one son, and I want to remember his name. Was it Amnon? I believe it was. Am Amnon fell in love with his sister. So Amnon forced himself on his sister and sexually assaulted his sister. After he was done with her, the scripture then says in the KJV that he hated her with a hatred that was now greater than the love that he formerly had when he loved her. Don't you understand you can fall in love with the wrong people? Mm -hmm. So just because someone says to you, well, I know my name is Jack, but I've fallen in love with Joseph, you can fall in love with the wrong person. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying from a scriptural standpoint. So when we, we look at this, this new and living way that the Lord has created for us, it is a pathway that, according to verse 20, it has been consecrated for us. This is a pathway specifically ordained for you as a Christian and for me. 
And that doesn't mean that other people aren't allowed to walk on. It means we're trying to get everybody we can to learn about Christ so that they can get on the pathway and we can all make our way to heaven. The Lord said narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. So we're trying to get people to walk with God because the high priest is waiting on us. That's the plan of God. Now, this has been the principle that has led to a deeper and more profound relationship for Christians all throughout the ages. Look at verse 22. Understanding all of that, you can draw near with a true heart. What's a true heart? A heart that understands its own motives. A heart that examines its own intentions. You have to examine your motives sometimes. You have to look at why do you, if, if, if you were going to be involved with something that had to do with a uh, program in town and they wanted to put your name on a billboard or on a poster, why does your name have to be on top? You have to examine your motive. Why, why does your name, the letters for your name, why do they have to be bigger than the letters in someone, someone else's name? Yeah. Some people are like that. Some people feel like if, if there's anything that's going on, it needs to, to promote me or lift me up and make me bigger. And if we don't examine our heart, that's a, that's a deadly thing because when we go into the presence of God, our personal and private inflation of our intentions and motives, that has impressed God. Prayer is the one place where God is never impressed with any of us because he already knows what we are. You know, at least in a crowd, I can stand up in front of you and I can, I can pray some very holy prayers. Most holy and august God. We can go through all of them, use all kinds of big words with the Lord and a lot of adjectives and all of that. And the Lord just sits up there and just looks down there. Oh, my goodness, you sinner. Do you know how to pray? Just talk to me like I'm your father and, and you have a relationship. So the scripture says, draw near. You draw near unto God, he draw nears unto you, but come with full assurance of the faith. When I talk to God and when I pray, I approach him knowing that he's a God that wants to answer and he's a God that wants to hear what I have to say. He wants a relationship with me. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to talk to a God that you didn't think wanted to listen to you. I mean, kids wouldn't even want to talk to parents if they didn't think their parents would ever listen to them. And we have to replace fear with faith. There are people who had such a bad model of a father that they have a hard time approaching God as a father. And then there have been people that have had bad models of moms, and it somehow has worked its way in there. If, if you take a kid that, a toddler, and Every time you come into the presence of that toddler, you jump from behind the wall and you say, boo. You know what's going to happen pretty soon? That toddler is going to associate that feeling of fear and surprise with you. That's not going to be a good thing. Yeah, it's not going to be a good thing. Now, these, these good ladies are laughing because the pastor scared them this evening. I went out there and jumped out on them. Okay, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of, of faith. So God wants you to approach him boldly, confidently, not arrogantly, not with a haughty spirit, but with full assurance 
that God answers prayer and that he's a person in whom you can place your trust. And the scripture says, having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now that's verse 22. Go back to Hebrews 9 and look at verse 14. Hebrews 9 verse 14. How much more, how much more than what? Than the blood of bulls and goats talked about in the preceding verse. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Your conscience is vital to a vibrant Christian lifestyle. Your conscience is the one thing that either will accuse you of sin or wrongdoing or excuse you of sin or wrongdoing. Yeah, it'll indict you. Or your conscience will acquit you. And Paul said that we should do everything we can to make sure we put the right information in so that conscience can be shaped and formed by the word of God. And many people in this world know that, which is why they want to start the kids as soon as possible today learning about some of the most perverse things. Because the sooner you get it in their system, the harder it is to get it out. And if you can't convince people that something that God says is right is actually wrong, then you're not going to be able to help them see that something God says is wrong, that it's actually right. It's, it's a matter of, of, of working on the conscience. So when you go into to church on Sundays and then midweek services, the whole point of the word of God is to help change thinking, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's Ephesians. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Romans. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In order to think the thoughts of God, we have to have the word of God in our heart and in our mind. We cannot think the thoughts of God until we put the word of God in us. In the moment our mind is reconciled with the word of God, then our beliefs and our behavior line up together. Because belief and behavior always go together. You hear people, they'll say things like this. I don't see anything wrong with that. So their behavior follows that. But if you help people to understand, here's what the scripture teaches, then our actions align with how we think. And you need to know in your Christian life, none of us are perfect, but though we're imperfect, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us and transformed us into saints. And you're not a saint because somebody raised their hand and voted on you. And you're not a saint because you feel superior to somebody. You're a saint simply because that's what Jesus did. Paul wrote his letters to the saints in Ephesus. They weren't perfect just like we are. To the saints in Colossians, to the saints in Corinth. And when you have a conscience that has been purged, you feel a whole lot better about yourself when you look in the mirror and when you come to church and when you're worshiping God. Folks, I tell you as a pastor many times on, on, on Sundays and in different services, because of where I am up in the pulpit area, I get to see people when they're out worshiping and stuff like that. I can tell when people are just struggling with a whole lot of guilt and shame. It, it's like you've got weights on your hands, weights on your feet. It's hard to enter into the presence of God. But if you realize one drop of Jesus' blood, can cleanse you immediately from your sin. You take a bath in that blood all the time. And, and, and as, much, as much trouble as I get in with my wife, I'm always saying, Lord, forgive me, please. 
Give me please. And, and when I do that, then I realize, okay, ah, now we're back to where we, we need to be. Yeah. There, there are days where you don't always feel like a Christian. Any of you ever had days like that before? Oh, my. Oh, yes. You, you have days like that. You, you, when, the, when the kids were little and then you had to spank them, and then, and then after you had to spank them, then you had to, get, had to get in the car and drive to church and act holy. After you just tore the house apart, see? And, and you may actually be grieving because you didn't want to have to do it anyhow. But because you had to go through some form of discipline, now you got to sit there and it's communion time. You got to reach for the communion and you're just feeling all bad. Or maybe you got in an argument with someone in the family, neighbor, something like that. And a whole lot of words were said, and they're the kind of words that, not only do you wish you could get back, they're the kind of words you wish you'd never said in the first place. And then you, you, you go out to that Tuesday night Bible study. And, and then th that pastor gets up there and starts teaching the Bible, and he says, oh, my easiest thing to do is just say, oh, God, cleanse me by your precious blood, and then allow your conscience to be, to be made whole that way. So verse 3 says that, that we should hold fast the profession of our faith. You, you, have, to, you, you have to work to do that now. There is a lot going on in this world to help you, to encourage you to lose your grip when it comes to your profession. Now, our profession of faith is real simple. We say we believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived in this world without sin. Jesus died on the cross in our place interposed himself, stood in our place, received the guilt and condemnation that should have come to us. He bore it himself. Then he was literally buried. On the third day, he was raised up. And then quite naturally, 40 days later, he ascended to heaven, as the scripture says, and one day he's going to return. That's the Bible. So that, that's, a, that's a profession of faith that anybody on this planet says to me, they believe all those things right there. I'm going to consider them a brother or a sister. I don't care what denomination they're part of. I'm going to consider them a brother or a sister, but it, it's, it's those elements of the world that work on you to try to cause you to lose that profession of faith. So you start thinking, well, but, well the, the books said that, that, that Jesus, that, that Mary may not really have been a virgin. See, so you, you, you lose that, and you're going to lose the resurrection because it, it's all downhill. It's just like Genesis 1-1. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. If, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, you won't have a problem with the rest of the Bible. But if you struggle with the idea that there, that there is a God in Genesis 1-1, then you're going to struggle with creation. And if you struggle with creation, you're going to have a hard time believing God made Adam and Eve. And if you don't believe he made Adam and Eve, you're certainly not going to believe Adam and Eve failed. And because of that, there's sin in the world. And if you struggle with the idea of there being sin in the world, you're not going to believe there's a devil that's out here trying to deceive. And as you can see, it's a chain reaction, and it just goes further and further down. And when I read many of the commentaries by so many of these brilliant people who are, whose minds are filled with the wisdom of this world, I read paragraph after paragraph, and listening to them, I can understand how they reached their conclusion. They didn't hold fast their profession of faith. And so that's why our churches in America are the way they are today. That's why our pastors are the way they are today. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. 
We're going to be steady on this. We're not going to be doubting. We're not going to doubt at all. Now, we just had a very big holiday here in this nation. Some people say that the last day of October, the, the sales for that day are bigger than at Christmas time. But everybody always celebrates that day, which is holy and sacred to people that get involved with all that stuff. But the day they really forget, which is the holiday for the church, is that yesterday was Reformation Day. See? Reformation Day. You take a man like Martin Luther, born into a world there was medieval superstition. People traveled all over the earth just to go and see relics, you know, to see a supposed beard from the hair of Jesus or some wood possibly from the cross of Jesus. Pilgrims coming from everywhere around the world just to be able to, to see that. And, and into this world, that man was born in 1483. He was fairly well educated. His dad wanted him to become a lawyer, but... He changed his mind and chose to go in the way of religion. Entered a monastery and was strong in the teachings of Aristotle at the time. Knew about the teachings of Augustine. But somehow or another, after he did all of this training and work, he ended up having to teach in a university. And, and lo and behold, he had to actually start teaching the Bible. And he figured if you're going to teach the Bible, probably about a at least read it to see what the thing says. So having to teach through Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews changed his life. He realized that serving God was not about thinking God was some evil, angry ogre sitting in heaven just waiting to pound him the first time he breaks a vow or something like that. He realized that Romans 117 meant, meant that the righteousness of God was something worked out through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and was accredited to the believer simply by trusting in him. Powerful belief. Changed everything for him. Well, of course, if you're going to read Hebrews, Galatians, Romans, and Psalms, your approach to God changes, your doctrinal belief changes. And since he was part of the, the Roman church at the time, naturally he started looking at the things that was going on in the church every day and around the city and around the world. He saw it differently now because his mind was being made conformable to the word of God. Well, they had a gentleman named John Tetzel who was a, essentially a salesman, and the folks over in Rome for a couple of hundred years had been selling indulgences. Now they needed to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica. So Mr. Tetzel was traveling all around Germany, and he came to the area where Mr. Luther was, and he was telling people that if, if you help build that basilica over there and you give a donation, the head of the church is going to give you this piece of paper, which is going to be an indulgence. So you need to understand if, if somebody's in purgatory and they want out, you just a couple of dollars here. This here is going to get that person out. If you get involved with some kind of transgression, you have this 
you can cash in because Jesus has established a treasury of merits and we're able to dispense or disperse those merits to you through these indulgences. So Martin Luther, he looked at all of that. He said, oh, my, this is not good at all. So he sat down, wrote out 95 particular things that he thought needed further discussion that displeased him. October 31st, then 1517 or so, 1519, somewhere around back there, he went to that castle door in Wittenberg and just nailed it up there on the door, which is essentially to say to all the people there, we need to, need to talk about that. Well, he didn't realize that by doing that, he was about to start one of the biggest ecclesiastical wars anybody would ever know about. But it's all because he took a stand on the word of God. He wrote a little book called an appeal to the Christian nobility of Germany. Because so many people were coming against him. People were attacking him. They were slandering him. They were lying on him. So he wrote that book to try to speak to the leaders of the nation. And then he wrote the book that, that almost sealed his fate and brought him to death like John Huss many years earlier had been executed. He wrote a book called The Babylonish Captivity of the Church, in which he talked about the Roman church at that time being the beast out of Revelation and the harlot and all of that. So, of course, his language was strong and his language was unmistakably clear. You were not going to read the book and say, I wonder who he's talking about. You know exactly who he was talking about. So, of course, they had to have a trial because they, they could figure out what to do with this man. Because at this time, he wasn't trying to get out of the Roman Catholic Church. He was just saying, this thing needs to be reformed. This thing needs to be changed. This thing needs to be altered. But they brought him in there. And, and when they had that trial of his, this man who's interviewing him named John Eck, they had a, a big table, had all of his books. He had written a bunch of books by now. He had all these books out here. And they brought him in. They said, Martin Luther, are all of these your books? And he said, they are. And he said, will you renounce all of these writings. Well, you know Martin Luther wasn't going to do that. He said, give me time to sleep on that. He came back the next day and he stood up there and he said, all of these writings have different purposes. Some of them are controversial. Some of them are edifying. But none of them I'm going to retract any statements. I'm not revoking anything that has been said. He said quite plainly to them, my mind is bound, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And he didn't change. Now, because of that, that one man, we had an entire Protestant Reformation who essentially stood alone. They called him the German Hercules. Think of that, the German Hercules. People were so fearful that after that trial that they were going to sentence him to be burned to death that he was kidnapped after that, abducted. And everybody wondered what happened to him. It was his friends that had abducted him and took him off to a castle in order to let him stay there essentially in hiding. And that's where he did most of his writing, translating the, the Bible into Germany and everything like that. Folks were afraid to have the Bible in that language. Now, now here's what I say in regard to that. Here's one man that stood against all of these prevailing winds and prevailing doctrines, and he held fast his profession without wavering. But you look at how our Christians today waver in the presence of people who tease us and mock us. 
You, you let the journalists call us narrow-minded, bigoted, or in mean spirit, any kind of adjective they can think of that's bad, and Christians will just wilt like as if somebody poured hot water on a flower. Just, just wilt. And in our churches and our denominations, we see very often the same thing. We, we wonder, how did this get into the fellowship? How did our denomination change like this so that we have these kinds of preachers saying these kinds of things? And how did the congregations change in such a way that they've come to accept these kinds of preachers and embrace it? And then you realize you don't have a whole lot of Martin Luther's today. And we don't have a lot of people whose minds are conditioned by the word of God. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Thank the Lord, he's at least faithful. Yeah. We might let each other down, but God's not going to ever let you down. God's shoulders are big enough and broad enough and strong enough to carry all the burdens that are on our hearts in here tonight. Yeah. And, and, and as much as I see things in the body of believers who claim to be Christian, I also know there is a true body of Christ that really does love the Lord and good things are happening within them all around the world. On Sunday, Sunday was Mission Sunday, I was sharing a lot just about what's going on around the world, people holding fast their profession of faith. I started off the service on Sunday telling a story about a few weeks ago in Uganda, a Seven-year-old boy had been invited to church by his neighbor, so he went. He so enjoyed that service and enjoyed what that pastor was saying about Jesus that after the service, he followed the pastor around the church asking him to pray with him so he could become a Christian. Well, it was a Muslim territory. The pastor didn't want to do it, but the boy kept following him around the house, around the church, and was pressing him, pressing him, I want to become a Christian. Pray with me. Well, the pastor... His role is to lead people to Christ. So he knew he had to. He prayed with the young man. He's a young man. He was seven years old. He was a boy. And the little boy received Christ as a savior. And he went home. And um, after several days, the dad noticed that the little seven-year-old boy didn't want to pray the Islamic prayers anymore. And he did not want to go to mosque anymore. And he asked his son what happened. And the seven-year-old Boy face lit up and let him know I accepted Christ. He's become my savior. Well, that father was so angry. He took that boy out to a banana tree and tied him there and set him on fire. And the, the neighbors heard the screams of that boy and came out there and rescued him. And they whisked him off into safety. He held fast his profession of faith as a seven-year-old. Another story. Back in April, two sisters on the same night at the same time had the same dream. A man in white appeared to them and said, go to a church and give your hearts to the Lord. Now, what are the chances of that happening? Very, very, very slim. Chances are very slim. God has to be involved with this. That's exactly what they did. They got up the next, the, the, the next morning, then they spoke to each other, found out they had the dreams, and that Sunday they went to a church, and I'm telling you, they sat that pastor down. That pastor's mouth almost, it just fell to the floor when he heard that story. He was so excited, he led them to Christ. 
Well, when they went into that church, this also was a Muslim territory. So the neighbors told their dad they had gone into a church. So when they got home, having received Christ, the dad was in that house waiting for them. And when they walked into that house without saying anything, he walked up to the first girl and with a first daughter and with a blunt instrument just started beating her and beat her to death. The second girl barely escaped with her life and got out and went into hiding. Why, why, do, why do people go through these kinds of things and not renounce their faith? Because they're holding fast their profession of faith. Jesus should mean so much to you that you'd be willing to lay down your life for what you believe. He laid down his life for what he believed. And the scripture says that that same spirit that's in him is now in us. So there should be something in us to cause us to stand up in the midst of a world that hates God, hates the kind of Christianity that was practiced in ancient times. They love this modern thing that doesn't want to offend anybody because it doesn't want to talk about the cross or repentance or sin. But the kind of relationship people had in ancient times, it was a vibrant thing. Supernatural things occurred then. Supernatural things still occur now. Now those are tough stories, difficult stories. I know a lot of other stories that Far more positive and a whole lot better. But my whole point is simply to say to you that we need a generation of people that will stand up for what they believe again. I'm serious. America needs a cultural change. I don't know how to change the culture of a nation without changing a religion because all culture is related to what people believe. In every small town, in every large city, every town in Nebraska is one person away from a revival, a genuine revival. There's somebody, it's somebody that's the key, whether it's the town drunk, whether it's the, the uh, person that, that everybody in town hates, whether it's, it's the person who's the wealthiest, there's somebody that, that's the key, and he's the one that knows who that is. I've gone to churches and preached revivals, and the, the people have told me in the churches they couldn't get anything going, nothing had taken place in a long time, but I always knew when I went to preach, there's somebody that's the key. And sometimes it's a grandkid, their grandma and grandpa and everybody else been praying for. And then, then in that meeting, that kid gives their hearts to the Lord, runs down to the altar and gets saved. And before you know it, that thing just explodes. Explodes. Well, if God can save you, he can save anybody. Isn't that true? Yeah, they, they say, I don't, know, I, I don't know if this is true at all, but they say, Gail... They say that when God, when God starts, he starts with the worst first. Okay? They say, that's what they say. I don't know. But that's, that's what they say. Okay, a couple of more verses. So let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. So I don't want to provoke you to do evil. You don't want to provoke me to do evil. That's Proverbs 1. We don't want friends to encourage us to go in the path of unrighteousness, but provoke one another unto love and to good deeds. That's part of Christian living. You become a genuine Christian. Out of that Christian life comes the desire to do good things for people. And love is a, is a powerful word. First John is all about love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. And the Bible says provoke one another into all of those things. Love is long-suffering. 
That means when you get to the point where you say, I believe I'm at the end of my rope and I cannot put up with him or her any longer, then God's love kicks in. So you come to the end of yourself. That's, that's when you need, need the Lord. The, the only way genuine relationships last is because of love. Scripture says a friend loves at all times. It does not say a friend agrees with you at all times. But a friend loves at all times. So even though I may not agree with what you do, what you say, what you believe, you may not agree with me as far as what I say, what I do, what I believe. If, if we have the love of God, then that still means if I'm hungry, you're going to feed me. If I'm naked, you're going to clothe me. If I'm in jail, you'll come say hello to me. That's what love is. Love is going out of your way and becoming an extension of who God is because that's how God touched the world. God so loved the world that he gave. So love is giving something. It's not preserving something. It's giving something away. It's an unselfish, it's an unselfish virtue that is ministered to people in need of it. I've told you before that the fruits of the Spirit are never for us that bear the fruits. The fruits of the Spirit are for other people. So if you go to Florida and you walk through an orchard and you're picking oranges off the tree, well, the, the oranges are no good to the tree. The tree's not going to devour the oranges. The tree is bearing fruit for someone else. And that's the same thing with you. The scripture tells you that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, temperance, faith, and all of these things, you're supposed to bear these because there are other people out here in this barren, famished world and they're needing something that they can't get anywhere else so they can get some joy from you because you're supposed to be one of the happiest people on the planet yes you're supposed to be a person of faith and trust and confidence and when they're running around said oh my goodness the world is falling apart what are we going to do hillary might get in the white house trump might win what are we going to do see they're supposed to be able to find somebody like you and say look God is in control. He sets up one. He puts down another promotion. Doesn't come from the east or the west or the north or the south. Promotion comes from the Lord. And then you get right back on track. See, that's that's the whole point of of all of this. Scripture says in verse 25, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Like some people do. But encourage one another. Exhorting one another, so much the more as you see the day approaching. The assembly of ourselves together. Now, in ancient times, of course, they did not have church buildings, per se. When the church began, folks were meeting in homes. And so you went to someone's house and very often had a meal. And sometimes after the meal, you had the Lord's Supper. And people fellowshiped and had a good time. But I'm sure through the, the processes of time, some of these moms and wives and ladies probably got tired of all these people coming in there eating up all the food. And they said, we need to build another facility <laughs> where we can do this. But the scripture does say that we're supposed to get together. Fellowship. I like the fellowship. Tiff and I, we're in church all the time. We're in church Sunday morning, ministering Sunday night. We're in church Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. So we're in church all the time, it seems, seems like to me. People say, well, well, preacher, what do you do all day? You don't have a job. Okay. <laughs> I'm in church. I'm worshiping and I'm, I'm, I'm praising God. I'm studying and, and all these other things. Okay, well, if, if, if I'm supposed to assemble myself with people of like precious faith as you're supposed to do, there must be some benefits to that. 
So what are some of the benefits to being part of a fellowship, being connected, being plugged in with believers? Well, number one, you hear the word. Yeah. Number two, you have people that encourage you and strengthen you. The Bible says the, the body, it has all these joints, muscles, and tendons. Everything ministers life, the one to the other. That same thing happens in a, in a church. Your smile ministers, ministers more to someone else <clears throat> than what you could ever imagine. Just your presence. Just you taking the time to give somebody a hug, a handshake. You never know what that means to somebody who may have been having a very, a very difficult week. And that's why we gather together. You may be having a very difficult time, a time of depression, excessive sorrow, anger, mad, bitter, wounded about the circumstances of life or things that are going on. And then you get around the believers and the believers can then kind of work to build you up and make you feel stronger. Scripture says exhorting one another. So at church, in fellowship, you're actually, contrary to popular belief, you're actually supposed to leave feeling better than when you came. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been with my wife in, in places before. Now, you've got to understand, I don't drink. And uh, I, I don't socially drink or anything. But I, I've been with Tiff before, and we, we've sat through services, and I've said, oh, I need a beer. <laughs> okay? I mean, it was just dry. It was bad. It was terrible. Just a terrible service. So, oh, my goodness. I understand, I understand why so many people avoid fellowship in church. Sad to say, I understand it though. But the commandment is, because this is not a suggestion, it says we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So I want to be somewhere where people encourage me. Yeah, I enjoy that. Now, this, this doesn't have to be in a sanctuary. This could be you getting together with two or three people. Remember what Scripture says? Two or three gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. I may be one of the most visiting pastors on planet Earth. Everybody knows Pastor Darrell likes to come by and have coffee and sit and talk and laugh and joke. That's just the way I am. Once I start getting to know people, I'm coming to the house because I have found... You can establish better relations with people sometimes in the home because people have a tendency to open up in their own little private space and fellowshipping. But I also have friends that are in the ministry that they've been taught and they encourage other people. If you're a pastor, you should never go visit them people. Because mm -hmm. if you get to know them too well, they become familiar with you and then pretty soon they start taking you for granted they won't respect you. Now I think that's a terrible way to pastor. I know a lot of them that do it. Yeah. Steve doesn't know. Steve may come home. He may just find me on the couch with my feet up. See? Who knows? Okay, look at, look at verse 25 again. The manner of some is. There are people that were like that at this time. I mean, the church barely had been going 50 years or so. And there were already people saying that they loved the Lord. But it was their habit and their custom not to go to the synagogue like Jesus did and read from the scriptures and associated with people of like precious faith, but to stay home. I had people in my family like that. You know, you call home and said, did you go to church this past Sunday? Yeah, well, what was the message about? Oh, well, I went to Bedroom Baptist Church this past week. So I, I, I slept through what he was saying. 
Yeah. Okay, the, the manner of some is it's easy to stop going to the house of God. I tell you this, from, from personal experience, observing people as a pastor, you miss one service, then it's easier to miss two. You miss two, it's easier to miss a month. You miss a month, it doesn't bother you anymore if you miss a quarter. You ask the person, you still love the Lord, you're still walking with God. Oh, oh, you know I am. I'm, I'm reading my Bible at home and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the scripture and everything. And then pretty soon, they never are involved with the things of God. And slowly but surely, what little bit of word was in the mind and in the heart, it, just like oil in a lamp, it burns up and it disappears. So the only thing left now, since the fire is gone, the only thing left is smoke. Smoke doesn't do anything but hurt the eyes and irritate you and everything like that. And, and that's what happens in, in a person's life. When they slowly begin to backslide, they, they find themselves in, in a position that, that's not so good. Because if, if I'm not happy with God, then likely I'm not going to be happy with myself. And if I'm not happy with myself, I'm start making problems with everybody else around me. That's, that's what happens. So the scripture says, if I really believe that the day of the Lord is approaching, that's what he's talking about, the day, the day approaching, the day of the Lord. If I really believe we're in the last days, I should be encouraging you to live prayed up, packed up, and ready to go. I should be encouraging you to love the Lord with your whole heart, walk with him in a strong relationship, vibrant relationship. Do whatever you can to make sure your relationship with God is strong. Put on some Christian music and that house change the atmosphere. You say, I don't like certain kinds of music. Well, get certain kinds of Christian music that you do like and praise the Lord and enjoy it. Find some preaching tapes, some teaching tapes. I mean, you can find all of this stuff online and fill your home with the word of God. If All you're going to do all day long is listen to CNN, MSN, Fox News, ABC, CBS, NBC, you are going to be a terribly frustrated person. Yeah. And we're liable to come see you one day and you kick the television off the stand. It don't have to be that way. It really doesn't. You, you create your own environment and atmosphere in, in your home. So if you, if you want the word going in, there's word from every direction you can have. And, and that's, a, that's a good way to live. Go to sleep with the word playing in the background, and start your day a little bit of devotion with the Lord because we really believe the Lord is coming soon. That day is approaching. Now, surely he hadn't come this evening, but he may come for one of you or me tonight. Tomorrow's not promised to any of us in here. So I'm encouraging you. Let's continue to fellowship and love the Lord. And on your Sundays, when you head for your Sunday services, be there faithful in your attendance and love the king, worship God, and uh, go from there. And we'll stop with this verse here, verse 26. It says, if we willfully sin after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice of sins, but a certain fearful looking of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversary. So we'll, we'll, we'll say a few things here and then we'll pick up on this the, the ne next week also. We need to know the difference between a backslider and an apostate. A backslider is someone who, for whatever reason comes up, 
They just stop walking with God, grow cold, may become wounded, you know, something like that. You run into this word over and over again with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. God speaks to them as the backslider. Hosea says it over and over again. Jeremiah says it over and over again. So a backslider is somebody who, who slides out of the consecrated path. But they can come back. They should come back. They should be encouraged to come back. And the backslider in your family, don't, don't leave them in a, in a state of peace when you're around them. And talk to them about getting right with God, coming back to the Lord. The apostate, that's something different. The word that we use in English, apostasy, it comes from a Greek word that means a person was standing in one place and then they just stepped away from it. Just stepped away, usually in relation to truth. So in the Old Testament, when apostasy is used as a word, there's a man named King Ahaz in the book of Kings and Chronicles. And Ahaz was a very wicked king. He did not like the God Jehovah and he didn't like the temple. But he went to Syria and he observed the worship practices there. And he came back to Israel and there in the temple had built there the kind of altar that he saw in Syria and had the people start offering sacrifices there. And so the scriptures goes on to say that he brought this transgression. He made Israel to transgress, which in the Greek Septuagint, it says he made Israel to apostatize. So that's, that's what he was doing. Apostasy has to do with a person who says, I know that God says this is the revealed way, this is the true way, but I have chosen to embrace another way or form of salvation. That's the difference. And generally, when you have people that go in that direction, they, 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 don't, they don't return because they honestly believe Jesus is not the way. So they found something else. Now, I would encourage prayer for anybody. First John tells us we should do what we can, try to recover people from the error of their ways. But that apostate mind and apostate heart, it's very close to Romans 1, that reprobate mind, reprobate heart. The scripture says that God gave them over to do that which was unseemly. They start thinking in their minds, well, I know everybody else says this is wrong, but feels right to me, feels good to me. And they persist, and they persist, and they persist, and they persist. And then God gives them over to those thoughts, and those thoughts control their life. Now, God is the only one who knows when a person has fully entered into an apostate condition. He's the only one. I could never tell you. I could only tell you that if a man told me at one time he was Christian and was raised in a church and he believed the Lord Jesus Christ was his savior and so on and so forth, and then he turned around and told me he went off and embraced Joseph Smith as the new revelation of God and Mormonism and all of that, the only thing I would think to myself is, I just feel bad that you've done that. Because that path, Cannot get you to where Jesus says he wants you to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no other name under the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. Yeah. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this evening.
again, we could look into the word of God and it is a mirror and it shows us the spots and blemishes and things in our lives. And oh, God, you know, the conviction that even comes on me as I'm teaching your word, Lord. I pray, God, help each one of us to become strong, vibrant Christians. And in this last day, help us to encourage one another and to hold fast our faith, our profession without wavering. These things, Lord, we do pray for as we leave this place tonight till you bring us all back here again. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.